Good morning. This morning we're continuing our series in Mark's Gospel, looking at the next narrative section, and this is going to be the last sermon in Mark's Gospel uh, until after the new year. Next week, Jeff's going to be beginning an Advent series that I'm looking forward to, and I know it'll be a good series uh, leading up to Christmas season. Uh, But today we're continuing just in that next narrative section in Mark's Gospel, looking at Mark 2, 13 through 22. Last week when Jeff preached, he preached on that story with the paralytic being lowered through the roof. And Jeff talked about some of the spiritual dynamics at work in that, notably the, the paralytic's vulnerability and how the paralytic got something better than what he was seeking in the beginning. And today we're moving on to the next narrative section, Mark 2, 13 through 22, where Jesus calls Levi. We see this fat, these questions about fasting that arise this text is also that for the first text in Mark's gospel where this famous group we know as the Pharisees comes on the scene for the first time. And we've gotten hints thus far as we've worked through Mark's gospel about some of the conflict that would arise in Jesus's ministry. Notably last week when Jeff preached on the text with the paralytic, uh, there was sort of this first hint that conflict would characterize Jesus's ministry when Jesus proclaims to the paralytic that your sins are forgiven He gets all of these people questioning, is he blaspheming? Is this Jesus blaspheming? And today, this conflict sort of ramps up another notch with the Pharisees coming on the scene. Before we dive into the text, let us go to our Lord in prayer. Father, it is a unique privilege that you have called us together as the people of God to gather and worship this morning. And we thank you for that. We thank you and are reminded that you are the God who initiates through and through, that we are a people who respond to your calling to come and worship. We respond to your calling as you confront us in the word, and we pray that you would confront all of us in the word this morning. You know our very needs. Uh, You know our needs better than we do. I pray that as the word goes forth to the congregation this morning, that by your spirit, you would confront us with it, that you would convict the prideful, that you would encourage those who need encouragement, and that all of us would walk away knowing that you are the living God who's made us home among his people, that you say that you are our God and we are your people. And I pray that we would take that to heart this morning, that we would learn what that means, that we would learn who you are through your word, and that we would learn who we are as the people of God. And we ask that you would do all of this through the word in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, again, I'm going to be reading, preaching from Mark 2, 13 through 22. Let me read the text to start out with. I'll be reading from the ESV version, and the text is printed in your bulletin. Of course, that's in your Bibles as well. Imagine that. So uh, let me go ahead and read. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. Well, this weekend... I had the opportunity with Jeff to participate in teaching some of the new members class that we held over the weekend. And I had the unique opportunity, um, I'll phrase it as an opportunity, to teach 2,000 years of church history in an hour. So uh, that was fun. Um, but as I was you know, reviewing some of, the, some of the critical events in church history during this week when I was preparing for it, I came across a story, I uh, was reminded of a story rather, that I think is a really good lead-in to this sermon today. And that, that uh, story deals with an event, a crucial event that happened in the year 1054 in the early church. So this is about roughly a thousand years ago. There was an event that rocked the church, uh, the effects of which are still felt today. And that event was that the church in the East, what we now know today as the Orthodox Church, split from the church in the West, what we now know as the Roman Catholic Church. Sometimes this event is known as the Great Schism of 1054. So let me in brief explain what happened in that event. You see, for several centuries leading up to this Great Schism of 1054, there was this heightened tension, this growing tension between the church in the West and the church in the East. Now, keep in mind, at this point in church history, for the most part, you had one large unified church. You had a few pockets here and there um, in regions like Egypt and the Middle East, but for the most part, you had one large church. The church in the West and the church in the East formed one ecclesial body. And what happened in the years and centuries leading up to this great schism was you had the church in the West, which was represented by the Pope, the bishop in the West, the bishop of Rome, slowly started to assert his power and authority and agenda over and against the bishops and the church of the East. And in the centuries, in the centuries leading up to this great schism, you had various inciting incidents that took place. In one incident, the church in the East essentially made a declaration that icons and images, they're no more. You can't do anything with those anymore. Well, the church in the West, and represented by the Pope, they didn't quite like that. So they said no. A few centuries passed, and another event happened where the church in the West decided on their own that they were going to add a controversial phrase to the Nicene Creed. Well, the church in the East didn't quite like that either, and so they said no. And as you can imagine, these tensions just start festering and boiling over between the church in the East trying to assert their agenda and power and authority over against the church in the West, trying to assert their agenda and power and authority. And all of this concoction came to a head in the year 1054. Let me explain briefly what happened then. So what happened was during, at some point during 1054, the Pope's right-hand man was just, just happened to be hanging out in the territory that would have encompassed the Eastern Church. So he's hanging out, going about his own business. When he gets word 
that one of the bishops in the church in the East is talking smack about the church in the West. They're saying some not-so-good things about the practices in the church in the West, condemning several of their practices. Well, you can imagine, when the, when the Pope's right-hand man gets wind of this, he scurries back to Rome, and he tells the Pope, these guys, they're, they're talking smack against us. What are we going to do about it? And so the Pope quickly sits down, and he writes a letter back to the church in the East and the bishops in the church of the East telling them, stop doing that. We're not, don't, we're not going to have any of this. And so he sends then the letter back with his right-hand man and a delegation. And this delegation is tasked with going to one of the bishops, the bishop or the patriarch of Constantinople, and telling him, stop doing that. So this delegation scurries off back east, and they try to set up appointments with this bishop, this bishop or patriarch of Constantinople. But this bishop of Constantinople, he doesn't want to hear any of it. So he makes them play the waiting game for two weeks. He won't see them for two weeks. He refuses to do so. So again, you can imagine all of these tensions building and building and building. And then finally, this bishop or patriarch in the east decides that he'll finally see this delegation. But when he finally sees this delegation, they all get in this roarish shouting match with one another, each side trying to say, no, we're right, and the other side saying, no, we're right both trying to assert their agenda, and it doesn't end well. And then finally, in East, on Easter 1054, while the bishop or patriarch of Constantinople is giving his Easter service, what happens is this delegation, they've had enough. They walk in the back door. It's almost like the, the bishop's preaching like I am, and some guys walk in the back door. They walk up to the bishop, and they slap an excommunication on him. And, and that's a serious excommunication is basically saying, not only are you not part of a church, not only are you not part of the church anymore, but your confession of Christ is essentially null and void. It's a pretty serious thing. And obviously, this patriarch or bishop in the East takes offense at that. And so he thankfully returns the favor to the delegation and those that have come to see him. He slaps an excommunication on them. So this is the great schism of 1054. What happens is they went their separate ways and the churches no longer really had relationships with one another. Their ties were severed at that point. And this is a severance that still exists today. Uh, We have the Eastern or, or the Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. Now this was an event that I'm told really boils down to two egomaniacs dogmatically insisting so much on their authority and agenda that they weren't really even hearing each other. They were so caught up in what that they were so caught up in being right and being correct that they refused to even hear each other on their own terms. Now, I began with this story because I think as much as we might roll our eyes at sort of the foolishness of this whole event and really how, how this severance between the church really took place, I sometimes wonder, though, if we're, and I include myself in this, if we're more like these egomaniacs than we care to admit. I wonder how often we are so dogmatic to assert our agenda or our authority, whatever that might be, over one another, We're so committed to our agendas that we don't even want to hear another person. And how much do we insist and assert our agendas so much that we don't even hear Jesus? Or maybe we're like the Pharisees and the religious leaders who we'll look at in the text in a moment, who they really do hear what Jesus is saying. They understand quite well Jesus' agenda and what he's asserting. But because of their agendas, they can't stomach what he's actually saying 
And so they refuse to hear him. They refuse to heed what he has to say. And in fact, they eventually seek to get him crucified. You see, when we trudge through the Gospels, this text that we're looking at this morning included, it quickly becomes clear that Jesus's confrontation with the scribes, the Pharisees, and the other religious leaders, that in these conflicts, we have one agenda rubbing up against another agenda. And even though we're only in the second chapter of Mark, like I alluded to in the introduction, we already saw this last week, right? We have a hint of that last week when Jeff preached on the text with the paralytic, where, the, where Jesus says that your sins are forgiven. He's asserting one thing, and those around him are saying, wait, that doesn't sound right. Something's wrong with that. Something doesn't quite fit there. It doesn't quite match what they believed and what their agenda was about. And throughout the Gospels, we're going to see just that, especially as we work through Mark during the next two years, probably. <clears throat> we see Jesus's agenda regularly clashing and rubbing up against the agendas of others. But I also think, friends, that when we really understand Jesus on his own terms, his agenda, when we really understand and take stock of Jesus's agenda, it'll probably at one time or another clash with our agendas too. And in this way, this text challenges you and me to consider the question, are we so wrapped up in our agendas? Whatever that might be, our way of thinking, our worldview, our ways even of reading scripture, are we so wrapped up in our agendas that we really aren't hearing Jesus on his own terms? And friends, this is the kind of tension in the air between Jesus and the Pharisees this morning. You see, Jesus feasts with tax collectors and sinners, and the scribes of the Pharisees, they ask, why does he do this? Again, a clashing of agendas. Jesus' disciples feast while others fast. And they're asked, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? You see, Jesus' agenda simply doesn't fit the received paradigm of the Pharisees and the other religious leaders. In fact, it aggressively rubs up against it. R.T. France, New Testament commentator, writes that there's a fundamental incompatibility between Jesus's agenda and theirs, meaning the religious leaders and the Pharisees, as verse 21 and 22 explain in graphic terms. You see, these last two parables at the end of our text where Jesus talks about this patch being sewn on a garment and new wineskins and how, how new wine can't go in an old wineskin and so forth. These two parables at the end of our text really help orient us, I think, to the overall thrust of this passage. You see, Jesus's kingdom and the agenda he brings isn't some add-on to existing structures. It's not some type of thing that fits neat and tidy with, with current Pharisaic regulations. Like new wine, and I, I'm not a, a sommelier, so I don't know what, be, what the best wine is. Is it a, you know, a, a best Pinot Noir or a best Pinot Grigio, whatever wine you like. Like new wine, the best new wine you can imagine fermenting and then bursting in old wineskin, Jesus is the best wine you can imagine that explodes the existing wineskins of Pharisaic religion. I love how New Testament commentator James Edwards puts it. He writes this. He says, the question posed by the image of the wedding feast, so he's referring again to these last two verses in our passage, the question posed by the image of the wedding feast and the two Adam-like parables is not whether the disciples will, like sewing a new patch on an old garment, or refilling an old container, make room for Jesus and their already full agendas and lives. 
The question is whether they will forsake business as usual and join the wedding celebration, whether they will become entirely new receptacles for the expanding fermentation of Jesus and the gospel in their lives. And friends, that's the question this text poses for us this morning. The call to discipleship, the call to be a disciple of Christ, is a call to lay aside our agendas, whatever that might be, and take up Christ's kingdom agenda for our lives. So, with that said, what do we discover about Jesus' kingdom agenda in our text this morning? If we're supposed to throw aside our agendas and take up Christ, well then, what does that mean? What is Christ's agenda? What is he about? Well, I want to propose that Jesus and Mark, in our text this morning, reveal three things about Jesus' agenda. So, three-point sermon. Perfect. Uh, Jesus' agenda involves three things. It involves risk, it involves reversal, and it involves feasting. Risk, reversal, and feasting. Can't get much simpler than that. Well, first, Jesus' kingdom agenda involves risk. Or maybe to put it another way, discipleship what we're all called to as followers of Christ, it involves risk. It's not a safe thing. Following Jesus just isn't safe. Let's focus for a few minutes uh, in order to illustrate this point on Levi. And in particular, I want us to focus on what exactly it costs Levi to follow Jesus. You see, this narrative, as is typical for Mark, is so brief and so straightforward. I mean, Jesus calls Mark, and Mark picks up his, uh, Mark drops everything, and he follows Jesus. It's so brief and straightforward that I think it's easy for us to miss what exactly the risk or the cost here is for Levi. But I think it's important for us to take stock, first and foremost, of what discipleship costs. And then after we do that, to take stock of what the terms of discipleship are according to Jesus. So first, let's look at who this Levi guy is. Just a few notes of background. Well, first, the text tells us here that when Jesus calls Levi, he's sitting at a tax booth, meaning very likely that he would have been a toll collector. Now, a toll collector would have been somebody who sat on a well-traveled trade route And when the necessary people came by for them to collect tolls, they would. They would collect tolls, and those tolls would eventually make their way to the the puppet king of Israel at that time, Herod Antipas. And um, now this duty might seem innocent enough. I mean, he's collecting tolls and uh, on a well-traveled trade route. That doesn't seem like a bad thing. But regardless, it's not like we're traveling down, or it's not like Jesus is traveling down the 417 right now and stops at a toll booth and says... Follow me, hop in to the toll, uh, toll booth collector. That was a joke, by the way. Uh, toll booth collector. <clears throat> uh, sounded better in my head. Uh, <clears throat> this, was a, uh, this was actually a despised position, the position of a toll collector. It was an absolutely despised position because, because first and foremost, it was filled by ethnic Jews who were seen as supporting the Roman system, the Roman economic system. And it was Rome who had Israel in captivity. So that's not good. Furthermore, the way toll collectors made their money was by extortion. They they were supposed to collect a certain amount that would make its way to Herod Antipas, but they also had to make their own money too. And so they would extort people for incredibly high prices as they would come by in order to make a living. And they did quite well at extorting people. They amassed quite a bit of wealth and ended up being very wealthy individuals. And also, where somebody like a, uh, a paralytic, like we read in last week's 
text or a leper, they would have been seen as ceremonially unclean in the eyes of a Pharisee or really a first century Jew. For a uh, toll collector or a tax collector, they would have been seen on par with an adulterer or a murderer. They would have been seen not just as ceremonially unclean, they would have been seen as morally unclean people. Because in their eyes, whereas a paralytic or a leper didn't necessarily choose to be a paralytic or a leper, an adulterer or a murderer or a toll collector or tax collector, they chose that. And therefore, they were not just ceremonially unclean, but they were morally unclean. So in short, as you can imagine, Levi is absolutely despised. He is a despised individual in a despised position in the eyes of the Pharisees. So with that background in view, it's easy, I guess, first and foremost, to see what discipleship, what following Jesus is going to cost for Levi. First and foremost, it's going to cost him his substantial wages and his job, right? As somebody who amassed a lot of wealth extorting people in the job that he was in, he would be leaving that profession and he wouldn't be wealthy anymore. So it was going to cost him his job. Furthermore, and this is a subtle point, but I think it's there, he would also be risking his physical safety. As somebody who was in a position to support the Roman economic system, uh, he would have also been in sort of a cocoon of safety, right? Because even though the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders hated tax collectors and toll collectors, they weren't really in a position to do anything about it because these toll collectors and tax collectors were funneling money to Rome and therefore had the protection of Rome. But by leaving this cocoon of safety and following the itinerant teacher Jesus, they're also leaving a potential, potential safety or the safety that they had under the Roman system of government. So Levi here is risking his safety. He's no longer protected by Rome. Consider a few other things Levi is risking or sacrificing by following Jesus. Very simply, he's risking his autonomy or independence, right? That's what, the, I mean, discipleship, when, we, when we're called to discipleship, as men and women, Levi included here, we're called to forsake ourselves, Right? and to follow Jesus, to sit underneath Jesus. We, so to speak, are no longer our own. So Levi's risking his uh, independence and autonomy. Furthermore, I think Jesus' key statement at the end of verse 17, that famous passage where Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous but but sinners. I think that's a clear window also into how discipleship Levi now included, saw himself. Levi, in heeding the call to discipleship, Levi is embracing by the grace of God that he is fundamentally not a good person, right? That's included in the call to discipleship. He's embracing the reality that he's not righteous in and of himself, that he is a sinner, that he's not a good people. And friends, that's the implication of discipleship for you and I too. When we follow Jesus, we're embracing the reality that we're fundamentally not good people, that we are deeply and utterly sinful in and of ourselves. And yet, despite these very real costs, these costs of what it's going to cost Levi, and then I guess what it costs you and I to follow Jesus, despite these very real costs, Jesus' terms of discipleship are not changed and they are not altered. They're pretty clear, in fact, and that is they're unconditional. You see, Jesus is either the Lord of our lives or he's not. There's no middle ground. 
You see, the call to discipleship is a call to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord over the entirety of our lives. It's a call to repeatedly throw aside our agendas, our way of doing life, and to embrace an agenda so much bigger, so much sweeter, so much grander than our own. You see, even though the cost of discipleship is a steep cost, it's going to cost Levi quite a bit, as we already said, and discipleship for you and I in various ways is costly. But despite that, that doesn't mean the call is lessened or the call is compromised, right? Jesus still asserts himself as Lord over our lives. That's what discipleship is. So in light of all of that that we said, I think two points of application arise from this point. First, when we are in a position as disciples of Christ, we're following Jesus, when we're in a position to call or to engage other people in that call to follow Jesus. When we invite somebody, maybe a friend or a neighbor or a relative, when we invite them to follow Jesus, it's, it's crucial that we understand what it's going to cost them to follow Jesus too. One commentator on this passage that I read, and I thought he put this quite well, he notes that in an, another gospel, it's something called the Gospel of Thomas that was written about 100 years after our canonical gospel. Um, it's a pretty weird document, uh, and it, it lists basically a bunch of sayings of Jesus, some of which he clearly didn't say, and the ones that he maybe, the ones that he did say are altered in significant ways. So nevertheless, don't worry about what it is, but the Gospel of Thomas and other documents that were written in the later centuries They present Jesus as sort of this guy who's sitting in a chair of religion, somebody who's sitting on a throne, just kind of vomiting wise sayings or aphorisms. Um, He's not engaged in, in life. He's not engaged in the lives of people. But that's where the difference between those, I guess I can call them false, false gospels, and our canonical gospels is. That's the difference between the, because the Jesus of the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is a Jesus who is engaging all kinds of people, ministering in real places in history. And I think even at the lead-in where, where Mark tells us that Jesus went out again beside the sea, that tells us something crucial because that tells us that Jesus is involved in the lives of people. He's engaged in the lives of people. He's not far off. He's engaging people in their real hurts, in their real needs, in real suffering, and in their real sin. New Testament commentator James Edwards, again, he writes that the gospel is not merely something spoken but lived. It's an incarnation. And hence, Jesus is not sitting home taking calls but he's actively out making them. You see, Jesus is intimately aware of his culture. He knows the roadblock, so to speak, to the gospel. He knows defeater beliefs that are out there, and yet he engages. He engages, but at the same time, he engages knowing the cost of what it's going to cost people to follow him. He knows what it's going to cost himself. He knows what union with Christ is going to cost himself in the end. And he knows what union with Christ is also going to cost you and I. So the question for us, friends, is whether we really know what following Christ means and what it's going to cost for our neighbors, for our friends, and for our families when we engage them with the gospel. Do we know what it's going to cost them? And then are we committed to walking with them in the process as they learn who this Jesus is and why this call of following him is so crucial? Now, this doesn't, again, mean that the call of the gospel is compromised in any way. 
But if the gospel is incarnational, as I think it's demonstrated in this text, then our witness, when we witness to Jesus, we witness about Jesus Christ to the world, our witness must also be analogously so incarnational. Are we involved in the lives of the people that we're seeking to minister to? And then second, very simply, this call to Levi leaves us with a question to ponder. And that question is very simply, what agendas are we clinging to? Are we avoiding the inevitable costs or risk of throwing our agendas aside and taking up Christ's kingdom agenda? Are we doing that? Well, this leads to our second point, second point and that is that Jesus' kingdom agenda, what Jesus is all about, it involves reversal. <clears throat> In other words, the reason Jesus' agenda clashes with the agendas of the religious leaders and the Pharisees and these uh, scribes of the Pharisees is because through Jesus' words and actions here and elsewhere, he reverses, he overturns the received norms. Foundationally, Jesus is going to imply in this text that the Pharisees have a skewed view of what the real problem is. And he'll reverse their received norms of what the real problem is by telling us what, in fact, the real problem is. It's not what the Pharisees think it is. So he reverses that. So let me explain. Real quickly, I think since this is the first text where we really read about the scribes of the Pharisees and this party known as the Pharisees, it's important, I think, to give a few points of background just to who these Pharisees are. Well, the Pharisees is a defined group. They took shape a few centuries before the first century, a few centuries before what we're reading about happened in Mark. And this group called the Pharisees formed in response to a problem known as Hellenism. Now, in other words, they were faced, faced with a situation in which the Jewish people were saturated in Greek culture through and through. The problem of syncretism became a very real problem. And syncretism, in short, is when you combine two different systems of thought together, when you mix them together, and therefore, I guess the ultimate end to that is you compromise one way or another uh, the belief system that you've held on to. And so the Pharisees, among other groups, such as uh, a group known as the Essenes and a group known as the Sadducees, they saw, <clears throat> they saw this situation where they were living among Gentiles and under Gentile rule. And in light of that situation, they saw the importance, the vital importance of distinguishing themselves from the Gentiles was all the more important. And so ritual and moral purity was of utmost importance to them. And moreover, in addition to the fierce, fierce commitment to the law that they exemplified, they were also involved to a greater or lesser degree in revolutionary activity. So it's going to be this group called the Pharisees dealt with this problem of, of this possible problem of syncretism where Greek culture was invading everything. They saw the need to separate and to double down on the law even more. Simply put, for the Pharisees, and other groups included, it's not just the Pharisees, there were other groups involved in this too, but for them, Gentile pagans and the influence of Greek culture was the fundamental threat that they had to guard against. But Jesus, as we see in our text, well, he sees matters differently. Not only does he call somebody who, Levi, who was a Jew, but was seen in the eyes, really functionally, of everybody else as essentially a Gentile, Jesus also dines with Levi and the tax collectors and sinners. And this was true back in the first century, and it's true in a lot of cultures today, that when you share a meal with somebody, that says something. 
That is an intimate setting that you're entering into where you're essentially identifying with those people you share a meal with. It's a big deal, a bigger deal than I think we understand, but that's true in a lot of cultures today and was certainly true back in the first century. So whereas the Pharisees, they pull back and fast in order to set themselves apart, Jesus, he jumps in and feasts with these people that the Pharisees are trying to separate from with all of their hearts. Now, I like what, again, James Edwards, I've quoted him a few other times thus far, but I like what he writes about this contrast between the Pharisees and Jesus. He writes this. He says, Jesus' fellowship with tax collectors and sinners and its condemnation by the scribes illustrates the radical nature of grace. The tradition of the elders which is what the Pharisees would have held to, justifies a status quo of distinctions and erects barriers among people. But the gospel seeks to transform and to reconcile this condition by building a bridge between Jesus and human need. And friends, here's the crux of the issue before us. The Pharisees and Jesus have fundamentally different conceptions of what the real problem is. See, for the Pharisees, the problem... I guess they, they would say the problem is sin, but for them, sin is primarily conceived as something to be overcome by keeping the law and by keeping away from those who are unclean. But for Jesus, this problem of sin is so pervasive, it runs so deep, it includes the Pharisees and their self-righteousness that strict obedience to the law will just not do. And in fact, it's impossible to do. So Jesus reverses the received norms of what sin is and how sin is to be overcome. You see, Jesus' agenda is undergirded fundamentally by a different problem than the Pharisees. And it leaves you and I with the question, what do we see as our ultimate problem? Philosophers throughout the ages and theologians and even average people have tried to answer that question and have come to different conclusions along the way. The famous philosopher Plato, for instance, he believed that salvation was found in education. He ultimately believed that the human problem wasn't sin, but it was rather that we haven't ascended beyond this material world and that we therefore need education to be our savior. Let's face it, whatever we're thinking about the most, whatever we spend the most time doing and treasuring in our hearts, that's our savior. And it reveals what we view as the ultimate problem as well. So the question is, what do we view as the ultimate problem in our lives? What are we investing the most time thinking about? What's our worst nightmare too? That'll reveal a lot. What is your worst nightmare? That reveals a lot about who you're trusting in, who is your savior. And then two, what you see as the ultimate problem to be overcome. Is the ultimate problem your station in life? Or is it those people that you really don't like? And ironically, this was the fundamental problem for the Pharisees. People were seen in their eyes as problems to be overcome, not flesh and blood image bearers to be loved. The point is that Jesus isn't a physician who fixes all of our problems. Not that our problems, whatever they might be, aren't real or hurtful or painful or perplexing in a whole host of ways, but Jesus is a physician who knows what the root problem is. He knows that the root problem is sin, and he did something about it. He is doing something about it, and he will do something about it. And just an aside, what Jesus will ultimately do with sin 
isn't to give us a life raft to heaven. Ultimately, Jesus is about cosmic renewal. And this we see, I think, in Romans 8, if you go there sometime. This is the ultimate goal of what Jesus is about. This is his kingdom agenda, is to deal with sin through and through in our own lives, and then how sin has invaded like a parasite into the rest of creation. Jesus dealt with it. If you're in Christ, he is dealing with it, and he will finally deal with it, because sin, friends, is the ultimate problem, and Jesus addresses it. He deals with it. Nevertheless, when we understand and embrace what this true problem is, according to Jesus, I think we will discover very quickly that what Jesus is up to is something so much more profound than we could ever dare hope for or dream. Well, this leads to our final point. Third, Jesus's kingdom agenda involves feasting. Or to put it another way, I guess, Jesus's kingdom agenda involves communion. Commentators note, again, I mentioned this a few points already, that when Jesus sits down and he eats with these tax collectors and sinners, this isn't a small meal. In fact, this, is a, this isn't like he's, uh, they're grabbing Chipotle and sitting down at a, to, to eat very quickly. This is indeed a festive meal. It's a, it's a celebration. It's a more formal meal. You see, this isn't a picture of Jesus reluctantly or half-heartedly sitting with tax collectors and sinners. He's embracing them by feasting with them. And in the next narrative section, when Jesus is asked the question, why do, your, why, do the, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast, Jesus responds that in his presence, fasting has no place. When the Lord of hosts, when the king of the universe, when you are in his presence, that's not a time for fasting, that is a time for feasting. Furthermore, The fact that Jesus compares feasting to a wedding feast is significant in a number of ways, but it's especially significant because of what Jesus is claiming for himself. Subtly so, but it's important, what he's claiming for himself in this text. Jesus essentially calls himself the bridegroom, as we see in verse 19. But in the Old Testament, the bridegroom of Israel was Yahweh himself. It was God himself. Let me read you real briefly. I just love this text. I don't want to pass it up. So let me just read real briefly from Hosea 2, 14 through 20. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen to me read this. But this is Hosea 2, 14 through 20, where God himself is speaking to Israel. And he says this, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer, as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the name of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. You see, friends, in light of that text, in our text this morning, Jesus is identifying himself as the God of Israel. 
He's the one who's enacting these promises of Hosea 2. He's the one who betroths an adulterous people like tax collectors and sinners, and frankly, like pe- people like you and me to himself. Do you want to know the significance of Jesus dining with tax collectors and sinners in our passages? Its significance is found in that Jesus, in the face of the Pharisees, is essentially saying to, saying to the Pharisees and to us that these people who I call and who come to me, these tax collectors and sinners, because I am the God of Israel, this is true Israel. The ironic thing about this whole scene is that the Pharisees and scribes pride themselves on being the true people of God by doubling down on the law and by sticking to it as best as they can. But the ironic thing is that for Jesus, it's only those who come to terms with their sin, the reality of the human condition, and who rest upon him who are the true people of God. The Pharisees and others avoided those who were morally unclean and ceremonially unclean, but Jesus sees matters differently because in the presence of Jesus, Jesus is the one who makes unclean things clean, and he makes sinners fundamentally clean. The shadow of the cross also peeks through in this narrative in verse 20. When Jesus tells his hearers, tells you and I, that there would be a time that would come when he would be taken away. And when that happened, fasting again would have a place. But even still, the fasting that the church practiced in her history and the, the fasting that we even practice today time, from time to time is, the, is of a different kind than what the Pharisees and others practiced. Because fasting in first century Israel was almost exclusively an expression of mourning. But the church's occasional fasting throughout church history, and even today, is of a different type because we're people who don't have to mourn. We're people who, who God has made his own in Jesus Christ, and we serve a Lord who isn't far off because the kingdom of God has come and because God has made his home with his church through the Holy Spirit. And because of that, we have the assurance that we are indeed his people, and he is indeed our God. And in this way, even though we may occasionally fast from time to time, we do so in the context of a feast, because Jesus promises that he will be with his church to the very end of the age. And he indeed is with his church right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. Thank you that you've made your home among us, that you said in the Old Testament several times that I will be your God and you will be my people. And Lord, we experience that now. You are indeed our God. You've made your home among us and we await the consummation to it all. We await the marriage supper of the Lamb where we will feast with you in exuberant joy. We'll feast with you in the new heavens and the new earth. And until that time, Lord, we wait. And as we wait, I pray that you would help us identify the agendas that we cling to day in and day out, whether it's our rightness, our correctness, our worldview, whatever that might be. And I pray that we would take up the agenda that you declare, the agenda of discipleship. Would you use us as a church body to help each other in that process, to come alongside each other, to show each other what it looks like, what discipleship looks like, and would we ultimately learn from you and through your word. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.